0: So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. The grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all of us gathered here and all who are tuning into this hour of worship as we fix our mind's attention and our heart's affection upon the one who knows us best and loves us most. Today I want to encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to two places. You can hold your place in John chapter eight, beginning in verse 12. John chapter eight, verse 12. But then I want you to turn back in your Bible to the beginning of the Gospel of John, to John chapter one, verse one. We'll be in several places in the book of John today. I hope you came ready for some scripture today. But we begin in John chapter 8, verse 12, and then John 1, verse 1. Today is the third part in an ongoing series that we are calling I Am. We've been pursuing a thought, a reality, really, and that is that everything that makes Christ who Christ is has a shaping power in determining who you and I are. The way I've been saying it is, who I am is informed and transformed by who he is. We've been talking a little bit about G.K. Beale, who said, what people revere, they resemble whether for their ruin or their restoration, whatever it is that you and I revere the most, we tend to eventually begin to take on the characteristics, the attributes, the traits of that thing that has commanded most of our heart's affection and mind's attention. What we revere, we eventually begin to resemble. And what we've been saying, and I began it on Ash Wednesday with part number one, that it's almost like looking in a mirror because when you look into the cross, And you gaze upon all that it took to put Christ upon the cross. And all that was required of him, his compassion, his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, his love. You recognize in looking at him that it's almost like looking in a mirror and having to recognize that none of those things naturally occur in me. That I am void of all the very things that make him Christ and me not. And in looking in that mirror upon the cross, we become mindful of all the unchristly parts of us. But in time, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, if we begin to gaze upon Christ in time, ultimately, if we bring a sense of humility of heart and an openness of mind to him, in time, those Those parts of us that are unchristly begin to fade. They begin to melt away. They are crucified with Christ, nailed to the cross. And as we gaze upon him, we become more and more like him. What we revere, we begin to resemble Until the point eventually where Christ looks upon us and day by day, degree by degree, over time, as we walk by faith, we are transformed into his very image to the point where he looks at us as if, Paul says, looking in a mirror, seeing only his reflection. So in this series, I Am, what I've attempted to do is call our collective consciousness to that reality. But if it's true that everything that is in him can shape everything that is in us, then we ought to spend some time getting to know him. It means that we ought to spend a little time focused on who is Christ, what is the character and the call of Christ in this world, and what better way to do that than to take him at his own word. In the Gospel of John, there are seven I am statements, seven statements of self-declaration Of who he is and why he has come into this world. And if we lean into each of these seven, it may be that we discover that something that is in him has every power to inform and transform that which is in us. And that's especially true today because today's I am statement is I am the light of the world. But in John's gospel, we hear him saying that about himself. I am the light of the world. But you know because you've read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's gospel where he tells you. You are the light of the world. So there is a very real possibility that the light that is in Him can inform and transform the light that is in us to the degree that we walk around in this life as expressions of the living light of Christ in the world. But that doesn't happen by accident. It requires our full attention. So this morning I want us to talk for just a moment about the light of the world. But before we do that, I have to lay... A bit of a disclaimer or maybe even just a premise before us because there's something that we have to understand about light before we understand anything about the light of the world. I want to say it this way. Uh, Light is not so much what you directly see as much as the way by which you see everything else. You sit with that for just a moment. Light's not something that we actually literally see, but light is the thing by which we are able to see everything else clearly. Now, I know somebody this afternoon from tech will send me an email with an attachment that describes the reality that maybe our receptors can see the photons coming at us, and I get it. Okay, but generally speaking, as a general rule, most of the, most of the point I'm making is that we don't see light. Light is that which enables us to see everything else kind of like wind you don't really see wind but you see the effect that wind has on whatever it's blowing around right if this is true about light that it's that which enables us to see then would you listen once again with new ears to the opening words of the Gospel of John in John's prologue, the opening words when he says, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being." Now, Now, what has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. Now The light shines in the dark, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. it's John the Baptist. He, he came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. Now he himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. And here's the money verse. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. John said that he's coming and that's why in chapter 8 verse 12 we pick up his I am statement. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. In other words, I am the way by which you can see everything rightly. Light is not so much the thing that we see, but the way by which we see everything else rightly. And Christ says, I am the way by which you see everything rightly. Now that's important this morning because my beloved sisters and brothers, we live in a world of darkness. I mean darkness everywhere. There's darkness all around us and there's darkness inside us. Some of you have come here today. I promise you there is somebody, I guarantee, here on campus or tuning in right now, and you are surrounded by a darkness all around you. You have something coming in the next stretch of your journey, and it's murky at best, and you don't know the outcome. And you don't know which path to take, and you have a decision to make or a crisis to manage, and it's dark all around you. But it may be that somebody's here today and there's not darkness around you. It's not that the darkness around you is what threatens you, but you have become aware lately of a darkness in you. A darkness that has the capacity to cripple you in ways that nobody sees. And you suffer from it and you struggle from it. And there is no kind of suffering like secret suffering. And you've done something you shouldn't have done. You've said something you shouldn't have said. Or maybe you've left something undone that you should have done. And you know it and you carry with you the shadows of the darkness that seem to kill you a little bit every day, bit by bit. And I'm telling you, if you're here today and either one of those describe you, it is not an accident that you have come here today. It is by design Because today I want to talk about what it means to find light in a world where there's darkness all around us and darkness within us. And the beauty of how John has gifted us with this sacred word is that this statement here in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world stands in chapter 8 in a curious spot for me, if you're thinking in a literary form, the literary layout of the chapter that we're talking about, right here in the middle of chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you'll not walk in darkness, but you'll have the light of life. But John has so arranged the layout of the gospel in such a compelling way that that statement, the I am statement, I am the light, is preceded and is followed by two stories about darkness. Right after chapter 8 where he says, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you'll never walk in darkness, but you'll have the light of life. Right after chapter 8, chapter 9 begins and it's the story of the man born blind. A man with no sight, groping around in a world of outer darkness. But just before this statement in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. If you walk and follow me, you'll never walk in darkness, but you'll have the light of life. Right before it is another story about the people caught in adultery. And it is a story that you and I assume is about one thing, but I believe is about darkness. An inner darkness that is killing from within. And right here between these two stories, the I am the light of the world statement is flanked by stories of what it looks like and feels like to live in outer darkness and inner darkness. And we begin with the man born blind. John chapter 9, verse 1, as he walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, well, neither, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with his saliva and spread the mud... In the man's eyes, saying to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. So you, you know this story. It's a story about a blind man born blind, able to see. It's a miracle story. There are miracle stories everywhere, but just like every miracle story that the Gospels tell, there is the miracle on the surface. And there are layers of miraculous beneath it. So on the surface, this is clearly about a man who cannot see, groping in a world to try to survive, and Christ restores his sight. But there are shades of darkness all throughout this story, including the darkness of the disciples' question. Did you notice the question that they asked Jesus? Which sin, was it he or his parents that would cause him to be born blind? The first shade of darkness in this story is the darkness of shady theology, of shadowy theology. That claims to make a statement about God that is in contrary to the actual character of God. Now I don't blame the disciples because they inherited their theology like you and I do as well. And what they inherited is a principle known as the Deuteronomistic Principle. Now if you can use the Deuteronomistic Principle in conversation at lunch you get 50 points. Would you like to guess from which book of the Bible does the Deuteronomistic Principle come? Leviticus, oh, you are closer than you think to the kingdom, my brother, because, yes, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, if you read it with a wide camera angle, you begin to see these sweeping themes begin to emerge, and one of them is the Deuteronomistic principle. God is trying to form his people, create a covenant with his newly Exodus uh, community of Israelites. And he's trying to describe to them, you're about to move into a promised land. And when you do move into the promised land, there are some expectations that I have for you. And so the Deuteronomistic principle sounds like this. If you obey my command, you will be blessed. Disobey my command and you will be cursed. It's just a fact. I mean, God has a particular way for us to order our lives and if we live in sync with the ordering of life that God has in mind for us, it doesn't mean we won't have trouble, it doesn't mean we won't have sorrow, it doesn't mean we won't have brokenness, but we will be blessed by yielding our lives to the ordered way that God has designed. And it goes also without needing explanation that if we live contrary to the ordered way in which God has designed Well, that will be a curse of our own making. We will make our bed and we will have to sleep in it. That is just a fact about human nature. The trouble is, by the time the disciples roll on to the scene, they've gone through generations. Have you ever noticed a particular theological belief that over time just kind of evolves? It kind of gets distorted. It's not what it meant in the beginning. So by the time the disciples come onto the scene, instead of living by the Deuteronomistic principle, if you obey, you will be blessed. And if you disobey, you will be cursed. What they do is start at the end and they find somebody who is cursed with some affliction, suffering in some way, and they make an assumption that if you are cursed, if you are suffering, if you're in trouble, it must be because you disobeyed. So somebody had to sin, so a rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? Do you see what's happening? So it's Nothing could be further from the truth. God does not work that way. And yet, as primitive as that sounds to our sophisticated contemporary ears, we do that all the time. I promise you there's somebody here who you're going through a thing. And you assume that the thing you're going through is because somehow you messed up, you did something wrong, and God's punishing you. And I said, well, I, we can't get pregnant. We've been trying for months. We can't get pregnant. I don't know what happened because we got pregnant one time. We've we got a kid. And we can't get pregnant again. And so secondary infertility, which, by the way, is a thing you carry around in your heart. What did I do wrong? What am I? How? What are you doing, God. This was my dream job. I had worked my whole life to get to this job and I was about to sail with it. And then management comes in and changes things. They restructure everything. And now I'm at the very bottom and I'm having to start all over. What did I do? God, what are you doing to punish me? That's the reversal of the Deuteronomistic principle. You see what's going on? So they say to Jesus, who sinned? And this was his response. Jesus responded to them, neither, neither, neither. This man nor his parents. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. Do you know what I believe Jesus knew? Jesus knew that we live in a world that is fragile and broken. We live in a world that is vulnerable to the complexities of a universe made of carbon. We have bodies that get sick and they wear out and they break and we come with an expiration date. And, and yet, in the midst of all of the suffering that we may endure in this world, the mystery that the light of the world came to illuminate is that while you are suffering in the midst of your, your affliction, in the midst of your curse, in the midst of whatever it is you carry around, what the light of the world came to illuminate is that even there, Even in the midst of the worst season of your life, God may be up to something to bring about good out of what you see to be nothing but a curse. See, there is a a verse in the eighth chapter of Romans, and we learn at growing up, all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to God's, who are called according to God's, Purpose, thank you, I lost it there. You know, I skipped a couple Sunday schools. <laughs> all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to God's purpose. And we, I know with that, I know I get it. I, I know the sentiment of that, and we put it on bumper sticker, all things work together for good. The trouble, and what I've, I've observed about life, the trouble is that in this life, not all things work together. Now, that verse means ultimately in the grand sweep of eternity, all things do work together for good. But in this life, there will be trouble. That's why I love a very rudimentary, concrete translation of the Greek from that verse. It sounds more like this. It's not so much all things work together for good, but from the Greek, it sounds like this. In all things, God works for good. In all things, in your blindness, in your uninvited season of suffering, in the trouble that you're having with your kids and they're anxious and they're, they're worked up, they're stressed out, and no matter what you do, you can't fix it or take it away from them. Even in all that, God is working for good. You see, the light is not something you see directly. Light is that by which you see everything else clearly. And in the disciples' question, the light of the world shows up, turns on, and says, the assumptions you make about God are not always as accurate as you think they are. God is up to some good even when you see nothing good. You see, this story that comes On the other side of I am the light of the world, the story about the man born blind has all kinds of darkness. It continues also in verse 13 because they take the blind man to the Pharisees. And here's what we read. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day. uh Uh-oh. When Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes, then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. He said to them, he he put mud in my eyes. Then I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, how can, I don't know, because how how can a man who's a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. This is an amazing moment in the story Where there are shades of darkness everywhere. The Pharisees are upset because God's messing with their calendar. There's a kind of darkness that comes when we when we get upset with God for not getting on our schedule. They're upset with him because when Jesus bent down and, and, and spit in the ground and began to make mud, by the way, for another sermon altogether, not for now, not for now, okay, but if I had some time, when was the last time you saw God reaching down into the mud to form together the first humans? See, God is always up to creation when we have been uncreated but when he bends down and he picks us for another time that's free when he bends down and picks up the mud and begins to form it see he's doing a kneading process and on the sabbath it's against the law to knead dough to do work so in every real way jesus sinned according to their understanding of what sin was he violated the law there's no way to decorate that cake there's no way to frosting that up to make it sound any better than it is according to their tradition and how they understood very narrowly their theological construct of what was appropriate and inappropriate what was clean and unclean what was sinful and acceptable he broke the law isn't it interesting how sometimes religion can just get in the way I talked about this a little bit during my losing my religion series just back in January and early February because the reality is some of us who are in, you know, following the way are sometimes just in the way. Sometimes good religion can go bad and the light of the world, the light is not something you see. The light is the way by which you see things better the way by which you see things clearly. And here in this story, the light of the world shows up with the Pharisees and shines a light on the reality that sometimes good religion can go bad, that we must always be shining a light on what we assume about God so that the very light of God itself may actually illumine among us. So, I mean, the story goes on and they they parade this guy around and the neighbors question him. The Pharisees question the parents of the guy. They bring the guy back to him and question him a second time. And then comes the best line of the entire story. We read it this way. The blind man who now sees answered, I don't know. He's a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see do you know what's amazing about this story that falls on one side of the I am statement this story about outer darkness what's amazing to me is that the light of the world shows up to reveal to us that he can make the blind see and also shine a light in such a way that those who think they see are the blindest of all It's possible for us who think we see to be the blindest of all. And the only way to know the difference is if we let the light of Christ shine in us. And that leads us not just to a curiosity about why John would take this I am statement and follow it up with a story about outer darkness, but it also piques my curiosity as to why he would preview it with a different story. Right before the I am statement in John, there is a story that this morning I'm calling the people caught in adultery. Because recently I heard a theologian who reminded me that we got to be careful about the little captions we have at the top of the columns in our Bible. You know, where you're reading about the Good Samaritan and it says, story of the Good Samaritan. Or you're reading about the, you know, the prodigal son and it says, story of the prodigal son. Because it doesn't say things like, The story of a broken-hearted father. The story of a bitter older brother. And in the same way, this story that precedes the I am light story is a story that you and I call the woman caught in adultery when conspicuously the dude is missing. And I don't know about some of these things, but last I checked, it takes two to tango. Somebody say amen. Amen. And he is not there, which is a shade of darkness that's worth pursuing in just a moment. But first, a word about that story. The word is the woman caught in adultery or the people caught in adultery. You know, that story is not in some of the oldest manuscripts of John. You know that it became acceptable around the 4th century and 5th century. And it found its way in other places in the gospel of John, not here in chapter 8. And in some places, it shows up in some form in a different version of Luke, of all things, and it doesn't show up in any Greek manuscript in this location right before the I am the light statement until the 10th century. And I'm wondering to myself, so after all that time, and it's a true story, after all that time, why would, would somehow it find itself on the other side of a story about I am light Because I believe this has something to do with adultery, but I think it has more to do with shades of inner darkness. Inner darkness. Because we know her sin. We'll get to that in just a moment. Her inner darkness, her secret sin. We'll get to that in a moment. But you know what the most sinister sin is? The plot. It is believed, and I am one of they who believe, that she was set up that the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus and so maybe they can script the help of a man who is no longer on the scene to entrap her in an activity because you remember the story. The story as it unfolds is the Pharisees brought a man before brought a woman before Jesus in the court of the temple, one of the courts, and said to Jesus, "This woman was caught in the very act of adultery." Which means in the very throes of the activity that she was being charged with, the crime she'd been charged with, and said to Jesus, in the law of Moses, the Bible says this woman should be stoned to death. What do you say? And in almost an unwinnable moment, an unanswerable kind of moment, you know the story. Jesus bends down, begins to write on the ground with his finger They continue with him. He stands up and says, you who are without sin, be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he begins once again a second time to bend and to write in the dirt. And haven't you always wondered what was written in the dirt? what he was writing. And people have conjectured for a long time what Jesus may have been writing as he kneels down there. And some have said, well, maybe he was writing you know, the sins of all the men who had come to entrap this woman. I don't know, maybe. I can't prove it, but here's the case. In most places, when it says he wrote something, it's graphin. In this place, the word that's used is katagraphin, which means to write with accusation to write in a way that you would bring a case against someone in court. So it's possible that he's writing these sins of the very ones, holding stones ready to, to execute her for her choices. And the text tells us that one by one, they begin to leave, starting with the oldest to the youngest. And you hear the thud of the rocks as they are dropped from the hands of the accusers one by one. And the text tells us they leave. But what's always been curious to me is that they leave in the order of oldest to youngest. I've been thinking about that a lot lately. You know, why do you think the oldest were they who left first? And then I read something that really illumined the passage for me. You see, it's the old and the old men in that passage who each have their own thick portfolio of sins of their own. That over the years they remember falling on their faces, failing, sinning. It's the young who are out to attack everybody else, right? Right? I'm thinking about that this morning because if you're here today and you have a wound that is still open and gaping and you are hurting because you know you've blown it, you know you have fallen straight on your face in something, you know what I think you ought to do? Get to know an old person. Now, you know I'm carefully not defining what old means right now. But the older I get, the more I know I've got scar tissue now that I did not have before. And with every scar, there is a story of where I fell on my face and he picked me up. And the more scar tissue you have, the more grace you have to give somebody else. It's not a surprise to me why the oldest to the youngest began to drop because, yeah, well, yeah, you got a kind of a point there. Let's, let's realize that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's fascinating to me, the scene... Because one of the things the light of the world does is exposes things. See, a light is not that which you see, but a light is that by which you see everything else. And the first thing that the light of the world will want to show you is the truth about you. And you've heard me say before, Jesus said... You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And you've heard me quote time and time again, the truth will set you free, but first it tends to make you miserable. Because what the light of the world will do will be to shine in the the shadowy corners of your hidden life where you harbor unknown brokenness, an unknown sin. Luke chapter 8, we read these words, for there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed, and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Can I just say that another way? There are no secrets with God. There are no secrets with God. And one of the ways I want you to remember this message is this way I want to say this about Jesus Christ will shine. A light right into the heart of your inner darkness, but not for your condemnation, but for the necessary illumination that leads to your transformation. Are you following what I'm saying? Christ will shine a light directly into the very heart of your inner darkness, but not for your condemnation, but for the necessary illumination that leads to your transformation. Yeah, yeah. You know why? Because Christ loves you and wants you free from the thing that keeps you in the shadows, that keeps you suffering in your own sin, in the inner darkness of your heart. So one of the greatest darknesses is in the lives of those men who lived by a double standard and the other is within the heart of the woman. They leave one by one, they're gone and she's standing there before Jesus now alone probably barely dressed, covered, and swimming in a sea of her own shame. And the text says that Jesus straightened up, looks her right in the face, and the light of the world says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And that's where the story ends. And he says, so I don't condemn you. Everything's fine. We're good. Those guys were just jerks. Uh, Have a great day. No? He says, neither do I condemn you because the God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. No, he doesn't stop and simply make her feel better about the fact that no one is there to condemn her. But he loves her more than that. God loves you enough to meet you where you are, but loves you too much to leave you there. And he says to her, therefore, go And sin no more. You know what the light of God does? The light is not so much something you see as much as it is the way by which you see everything, including yourself. And he says to her, when he says, Go and sin no more, what he's saying is, Look, I'm holding a light up for you to see. Yes, you may have been trapped. Yes, it may have been an exploitation. Yes, it may have been that a majority of this is their problem, but I gotta tell you, there's something that made you say yes. And that's worth shining a light on to see if there are any patterns in you that need to be broken. And by my love, I can help you break it. So go look at your own heart, take inventory of where you yourself continue to spiral into a vortex of your own self destruction and then sin no more. This is what makes Scripture unlike any other read. Right in the middle of it, the sacredness of it is right in the middle of the text. I am the light of the world. You follow me, you'll never walk in darkness. You'll have the light of life. And John flanks that statement with examples of those of us who live with outer darkness and don't know where to turn and those of us who live with inner darkness and don't know if we're going to make it another day And the light of the world. It illumines the path to salvation. Now you may be here listening to me today, and you're like, okay, that sounds great. What a great message about a beautiful metaphor about Jesus and the light. I get it, it's a symbol, it's beautiful, it's kind of it flows very well. But you haven't told me how to access the light. Because the light is there and the light is available, and the light can illumine the path to salvation. How do you access it? (laughs) By humbling yourself and saying to him, I am walking in darkness. I've tried to pretend that I am not. I look pretty good at stumbling around in the dark as if I have some kind of extra sensory capacity to navigate these, these dark times in this dark world, but no longer, Lord, I am broken, and I confess to you that you are the only way by which I can see my way.